what's really going on everybody welcome back this is episode number 67 uh i am back with henry and mckenzie uh before we get into our very very special guest be sure to follow us on all of our social media that includes twitter and instagram at wrgopod be sure to subscribe on youtube also be sure to like listen subscribe comment on apple Podcasts, spotify soundcloud and google play Finally, be sure to check out our website, what's really going on pod.com. This is our first time we have a guest of this magnitude. Uh, I will let her introduce herself. Thanks, Noah. Um, hello to all the listeners. My name is Christina Henderson, a DC council member um, at large representing the entire city. I was, um, I was elected in November and got started this January. Awesome. So I guess we'll just kick it off with that uh, election since this is your first, this is your first term. Uh, the 2020 elections were historical, both, you know, nationally and locally uh, in the city, including your election. Um, you uh, and Brooke Pinto and Janice George uh, replaced three men on the council, uh, making it the first uh, majority female council in more than 20 years. Um, what do you think that kind of impact will have um, on the city? Um, well, you know, it's so funny because I always say, I, like, I feel like women lead differently and, you know, no shade to you, Noah or Henry, but Mackenzie might feel me on this. Um, I feel like the tone and tenor of debate is just, um, is a little bit different. I think uh, women, you know, his, like historically speaking and just statistically it shows are, you know, more collaborative in nature in terms of policymaking. Um, it's less about who's getting credit. It's more about like, who's going to like, let's get it done. Um, and getting the work happening. And um, I think so far it's actually been a lot of fun because you know, I used to work for the council um, four years ago and to now be back as a member, I could tell the difference um, that my colleagues, um, just the energy feels different uh, um, when we're in meetings and things like that. Um, as we you know, work to stir up good trouble um, while serving our constituents. So. Um, it was a really exciting thing to bring back a female majority after a few decades. Um, and I think we're excited to get to work. Yeah, and of course, included in, you know, the, the history of you all kind of winning your races, that includes, you know, Kamala Harris, who is now, you know, vice president. What do you think her victory as well does? Does that kind of, you know, give you all more kind of, you know, breath in your wings? Or kind of how does her being, you know, the first, you know, not only woman, but black woman in that role. How does, does that kind of change your mindset on anything or just anything is possible? Well, you know, uh, Vice President Harris and I uh, share a sorority heritage of the illustrious Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. So you can tell me nothing in January, um, watching her be inaugurated soon after um, Founders Day and, you know, just having an immense pride. Janice is also an AKA. So, you know, we've upped our numbers on the council too. But um, I think, you know, historic, like, not historically, but I feel like uh, we have women around the country, uh, especially women of color who are seeing um, women who look like them be elected, um, young women who look like them be elected. And I think is giving them the encouragement to step up. Um, if there is something that they see that's wrong in their community, um, if they have feel like they have good ideas, um, this is not the time to say you need, you know, 25, 30 years of experience in order to run for office. I feel like folks are feeling like let's get off the sidelines. But um, I would also add to that, 
you know, I've never been one to like the term wait your turn when it comes to politics, especially when it comes to um, politicians of color, because I feel like that happens a lot in our community where uh, wait your turn, it's not your turn, wait your turn. Well, you know, my turn could happen when I'm 60, but <laughs> my turn can also happen when I'm 34 and I'm, I have the energy to represent the community. And so I think, you know, even with, um, uh, Vice President Harris, she says a lot of people said when she was coming up, you know, wait your turn, you you moving too fast, you you know, um, and I think she's showing no, the the country is ready for change, the the country is ready for a new brand of leadership, and um, if you feel like you can do the work and you are willing to put yourself out there, um, we need you, we need your leadership, we need your innovation, we need your ideas, and so let's let's do it. So Councilwoman Henderson, I want to kind of like speak on two things. One, we have a Delta on the podcast, so. <laughs> I mean, I know. I know. That's why I did it, because I know. But that's okay. <laughs> we'll circle back to that, but I was going to let you have your moment. <laughs> uh, and I'm a member of Phi Beta Sigma Return Incorporated uh, myself. Uh, so like. For me, you said the energy is different, especially like working with women. And I kind of want to comment and say, like, I, I prefer working with black women, you know, uh, but, you know, women in general, because like you said, like, it just seems like new ideas, a different energy. And like you said, some most times they're more organized. Uh, so it's easier to kind of like get stuff done. Uh, and then to the fact of like you being new and like, the fact that you ran as an independent is something I would personally be interested in because I don't title myself a Republican nor a Democrat. I'm like, what serves me type of person. So what made you choose to run as an independent? Um, you know, I mean, like, Henry, I don't want to burst your bubble, but it was kind of a technicality. So <laughs> <laughs> in, in some manners. Um, because when I decided to run for office, I was actually working full time for now Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, who is very clearly a Democrat, right? Um, mm -hmm. But so what people don't really know about DC government is that um, DC didn't get home rule, which is like the ability to um, control its own local functions and to elect its own government until, I mean, it's fairly recent. I'm gonna call it recent because there are people who are still living who remember what it was like um, when their council members were appointed. And um, when Congress said, okay, DC, yeah, you can vote for your own people. They added an additional little clause that said, at least two people of the council, at least two seats of the council have to be reserved for someone not of the majority party. So there are always at, at any time, two seats of the council that cannot actually be held by Democrats. And in the past, we did have some Republicans who were be able to be competitive in terms of their elections. Um, that changed a lot, especially during um, Bush two days uh, in 2004 and so on. And so, um, the only way I could hold this seat is by being an independent. I do feel like Henry though, you know, to your effect of like, I don't really go with either party. I kind of go with what suits me is that actually I, I kind of enjoy it because, um, you know, while my ideas and my values are certainly progressive in nature, I don't feel beholden to chowing to some particular party line in terms of the work. Um, you know, I'm here to do the work of the people. And um, 
I think just as an independent, it just allows me a little bit more freedom to, to do that. Um, but, you know, I'm still, I talk to the Democrats. <laughs> um, I'm definitely a progressive in, in, in my policy stances and works. But yeah, the independent part is a bit of a technicality. Well, switching gears, we saw that you visited um, an elementary school or a school last week preparing for students to reopen. And with everything going on in the pandemic and teachers going on strike of not being feeling safe within the schools, how do you think we, just like as a community or as a, as a DC community, how can teachers feel more supported? Did they tell you anything of how they can feel better in the classroom working with students or like how were they preparing to bring students back? And also making families feel safe that they're sending their student to a school that's safe and they won't come back with the virus. Yeah, so I had a chance to do a walkthrough at a middle school um, in, um, in DC that was preparing to bring students back. And um, I didn't really have a chance to talk to teachers. I spent a lot of time talking to the principal of the school around you know, what the policies and procedures are. Um, but in teachers that I've talked to, um, you know, since then, because I've been to a vaccine, I went to the vaccination clinic where we were vaccinating a bunch of teachers who were preparing to head back to in-person. Um, I understand the anxiety, right? Um, this virus is changing each and every day. And I think for some of our teachers, um, especially our teachers of color, who have seen the impact of COVID-19 in our communities, um, I don't begrudge anyone who feels um, nervous about um, doing the work in person. And what I'm finding though, as I talk to um, you know, some folks, educators, is that um, it really is they're following the leadership. Like if you feel confident in your school leader, if you feel confident in your, in, in your principal, that they're listening to you, that they're gonna create an environment that is safe for you, that they are willing to say, okay, this is not working for us when um, you know, you're starting to see cases rise and those kinds of things. I feel like that is adding some additional, that, that will add some additional comfort for teachers. I think that is also the very same thing that adds additional comfort for families at the same time, right? If you, if you trust your school, and you, you believe that they are doing everything in the best interest of your child, um, those, those folks are gonna choose to come back. Um, and I think that what we're seeing or what we'll see in DC over time is how DCPS as well as public charter schools are open, how they're able to handle um, you know, the next couple of weeks will dictate what happens and how families feel safe and comfortable next term and then you know, coming back in the fall. So I think it's a trust exercise, um, really. I definitely agree um, because I'm not in DC, I'm in Georgia and you know, they got our kids in school. <laughs> and I be like, it is cool to see some of the initiatives, like they definitely have to wear a mask and like they have these things in the hallway that the kids, you know, walk up to and all that stuff. So, like you said, like, it's definitely like the, okay, you got to gain trust and ensure that the person in charge of the school is kind of following protocol and ensuring that everything is like as safe as possible. Yeah. Um, where are you in Georgia though? I'm in the Atlanta metropolitan area. Okay. See, I, I don't want to get you off on your questions. However, comma, I feel like people in Atlanta feel like the pandemic has skipped them over. Yeah, I, I was pictures. just about to say yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen pictures of people at brunch and <laughs> out at clubs 
and doing things that I'm like. If the leadership, like like we just said, the leadership, our governor governor don't think it's real. So what you expect (laughs) us to do, sit in the house? But Maya, Maya Keisha has been, her family got COVID. So like it should be very real for for Black Atlantans or people of color in Atlanta. But I just want to say that. Like for, <laughs> in some of these places where it's like, oh, I don't think the kids could come back, but you had brunch on Sunday. And no, that's actually a good point though, because it is confusing, especially when it comes to schools, because... I live in New York, but I'm in the DC area right now. But one of my older friends who has a son, she lives on Long Island and her son has been going to school. But it's like, so, and then New York City schools are on a whole different thing. So it is kind of confusing on who's going to school and who's not. It's just, it's just really interesting. And my sister's in college and she goes to school in Maryland and they have, we went to Howard. So our campus is closed, but her school, Bowie, they're allowed to be on campus. It's kind of reserved, but their dorms are open. She has a place and she kind of commutes back and forth. But it's just weird to see like people doing whatever, basically. Lackluster leadership. And speaking of leadership, <laughs> it kind of goes into a question. <clears throat> because as you mentioned, <clears throat> you were a legal assistant uh, for a leader of Chuck's Excuse me. I, I'm, ter- I'm trying to, the SCH. Mess me Schumer, up. Schumer, Schumer. I'm sorry. I was, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, who recently kind of called Biden out about canceling, you know, up to 50,000 in student debt, which, you know, that ain't a lot. Um, but <laughs> if you knew what it took to get everybody good with 50, that's kind of where we want to go with it is one, how do like they even like get to this? amount and then two what should us as like regular citizens recent college graduates expect to see um happening in regards to student loans in the coming weeks yeah so i mean we kind of have to go back because um you know i was a, a legislative assistant for schumer so i was handling the policy around education and labor we had been having i would say the democratic party had been having a conversation about um debt-free college or free college, certainly since um, the 2016 election. I think that Senator Sanders definitely brought that onto the national stage in terms of the conversations that was being had. When the pandemic started-ish, back in March, April, um, a colleague of mine who, um, there were a bunch of different offices that were kind of talking around what is the type of relief that we need to provide to individuals, especially when we are seeing job loss that is picking up, especially amongst um, uh, hourly workers in the hospitality sector, et cetera. And student loans was definitely part of that. Because I think if you look data-wise, the most amount of debt, um, when we're talking, you know, I think it's about $1.7 trillion worth of student loan debt that we have in the country. And before the pandemic, people were talking about how student loan debt was about to be the next type of um, crash or crisis in the same way that we had the housing crisis and recession back in 2008. And um, so originally the proposal was, let's cancel 10,000 of student debt or up to $10,000 of student debt. That was like in last April, so April of 2020. Then as the pandemic kept going on, 
people still ain't got jobs, all of these different things. Um, Republicans weren't down with the canceling piece, but we did get them to do the pause on student loan payments and then the pause on interest. So, um, you know, for student loan borrowers who are listening, who are out there, um, you technically haven't had to pay your student loans for almost the better part of a year at this point. If it's not private, because oh, yes, private- if you have yes, <laughs> if you have a federal student loan, let's clarify. If you have a yeah, federal that's a student very, loan, very, yeah. very important word. It's a Don't very important piece. Yeah. Um, and you know, we could do a whole segment in terms of like what is the type of financial education that high school students should be having before they sign the paperwork for some of these loans. But if you have a federal student loan, um, you know, your payments have been paused, there has been no interest, collections have been paused, all of these different things. And then, um, you know, my former boss and Senator Warren were like, "Mm, we need to do a little bit more. And I feel like we could push the president to do it. Senator Warren's office had done some, you know, legal research about the powers of the presidency and whether or not the president could administratively speaking, cancel student debt, meaning you don't have to go through Congress to make that happen. And um, so that's where we came with the cancel up to $50,000 of student debt, not having to go through Congress. Literally Biden could um, do this via an executive order. Um, And so that's where the pressure has been around that. I don't know what is going to happen, but I am so glad to see though, like organizations like the NAACP and others have been putting the pressure on um, and not easing up on this conversation around student loan debt. I think like in the DC area alone, um, excuse me, um, we rank the highest in student loan debt with about, um, you know, an average of about $55,000. A lot of- That's shocking. Yeah. And I mean, you know, when we talk about it, right, it's not about just like canceling the debt, but what does that mean, especially when we're talking about millennials of color or young people of color in terms of your ability to purchase a home and, you know, go on from a financial um, standpoint, I just feel like student loan debt is saddling a lot of people um, in terms of their ability to build generational wealth. So we need to talk about it because yeah. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the amount I've put down on my student loans in just three and a half years, I could probably put a down payment on a house to your point. Um, yeah. And people, who, it, like, you know, those interests, the interest gets you. Yeah. Because yeah. you think you're selling. You. And then the you interest? check and you like, but the principal says. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, so many childcare facilities um, have been forced to close due to kind of you know low enrollment, and for many mothers, um, they're still the primary caregivers, which has forced you know a lot of mothers to quit jobs uh, and just attend to their families' needs. Um, you know, President Biden's relief bill offers twenty-five billion uh, to support childcare's needs. You know, as a working mother yourself, um, how do you see this aid helping you know mothers and families in this you know time where? you know, not everybody has the flexibility that they once did. Yeah, I mean, I'm actually glad that this has picked up in conversation because, you know, last, at the end of last year, we had had, I would say over 725,000 women who had left the workforce at the beginning of the school year and nobody was talking about it. And much of it was around um, having to balance the responsibilities of childcare, 
um, or you know your child's school wasn't open and so you needed to do that part. But um, I think, especially if, if you have a younger child, yeah, virtual learning is cool, except for my three-year-old doesn't know how to sign on to a Zoom. So <laughs> you basically have to sit there you know, yeah. and do that work with them. And I think that childcare is incredibly critical. I, I don't view it as just a care situation, but um, it's workforce issue. It's critical to the economy. When I have conversations with businesses like um, and organizations like the Chamber of Commerce or um, even on a federal level, when we were talking to the business roundtable, you want your people to come back to work? They need childcare. You mm -hmm. want great workers? give them affordable childcare, Offer, start offering childcare as a benefit, right? In the same way that you would give me a Metro subsidy, give me a subsidy for childcare, because yeah. um, especially in the DC area, you know, people are paying um, basically like a small in-state tuition every yeah, year. I say people, I'm part of those people. <laughs> um, but it, it really is difficult. And I think also we have to remember like these childcare centers and homes, they're small businesses. Many of them are run by women, many of them women of color, many of them immigrant women. Um, and so if we talk about, if, if you say you value, um, you know, closing the wage gap, if you say you value closing the achievement gap, right, in terms of getting young people into early childhood education earlier, we need quality places for young people to go, but we also need it available in such a way that we're not making families go bankrupt just for it at the same time. Um, I have an almost two-year-old. She turns two next month and um, she was home with us for six months while I was campaigning, while yeah. I was working. And so when they were like, and we're open again, I was like, and she'll be there. <laughs> um, I think people got to keep that in mind too. I think sort of connecting it to the conversation we were having earlier about schools being open. Daycare centers have been open this entire pandemic. Right, they've been providing care to young, to families, uh, especially for those who are essential workers or healthcare workers. Um, and so how we kind of all put it together, um, you know, I think it's, I think it's important. Childcare is essential. No, seriously, because again, I'm in Georgia, right? And <laughs> I was in the DC area up until like October. So when Georgia shut down for like that week or whatever they did, um, my sister, like, fortunately enough, we have a bigger family, so we were able to make some accommodations, but just imagine how she was in that situation, um, having to, like, figure out the, like, you know, home care situation of, like, because I have a niece who's eight and then a nephew who's six, so they can't, you know, they're not old enough to stay home and then to the point of, like, doing the homework, like, work from home. She has to be there. Someone has to be there to kind of assist them with doing that. Um, so I, I definitely like feel you on that because it was awkward trying to figure that out at first. And to the point of like most of those people like taking care of those children during the pandemic have been small businesses, right? Um, so like, you know, you're an advocate for small businesses and you support it, like creating a version of the Paycheck Protection Program to help small businesses who've been largely like impacted by the pandemic. Um, and I am a small business owner and I know how that would have personally helped me. So at, like, how do you think like pushing that initiative would have like maybe, you know, probably helped some healthcare, you know, uh, childcare providers or small businesses who, you know, 
whatever the case may be to uh whether that was you know, stay open a little longer and especially in dc how a lot of black businesses were affected um and closed down because of whatever reasons uh how do you think that could have like helped out yeah, I mean, I would say, um, you know, since the launch of the federal version of the Paycheck Protection Program, at least in D.C., I would say our local government has stepped up. We we now have the bridge fund. They've been providing grants to small businesses, et cetera. But, you know, I I kind of um, am saddened by the, the the lag in time because mm-hmm. we we know or we knew, you know, anecdotally, but also from the data that businesses um, that were run by folks of color were not able to get the money from the federal side, right? So if you weren't seeing any aid or relief happening on the state or local level, um, it was a really a period of, of struggle. And um, I, I think in DC, we're definitely seeing some progress. There's still some work to be done because I know we, we did the bridge fund. We did have a, a, a number of businesses um, on the restaurant side and otherwise who were unable to get funds, but um, we got some, I would say, uh, hopeful financial news on the DC front in terms of, um, we have, we have a little bit of a surplus and so hopefully we'll be able to provide more relief to our businesses, um, to help them stay in business, but also for them to also bring back their workers, um, who many of them had to let go over the course of the pandemic. Um, you know, small businesses are really the lifeline in terms of uh, not just the economy piece, but also some of the things we love most about DC culture is wrapped up and tied up into some of the businesses um, that are especially run by, by folks of color. So I would definitely be pushing the mayor's office to continue for us to do all we can to support these, these businesses. And not just like the restaurant and hospitality area too, but I often talk about like, we don't talk often about like the cleaners who have been uniquely impacted in that. Like, I don't know when the last time y'all been to the cleaners, but I haven't been to the cleaners. Since I haven't been in over March. a year. Over a year. <laughs> <laughs> right. And these are not corporate entities. Mm-hmm. These are usually family run businesses and, and things like that. And they can't be sustained with takeout that's not their business model. Right. Um, you, you need people to be going out somewhere and that's not really happening right now. So we need to make sure that these businesses are gonna be around for whenever we get back to going outside. Yeah. Well, switching gears, you recently introduced a legislation that would increase access to maternal health. What do you hope to see in the future with this if this gets passed? Um, Thanks for that question, Mackenzie. Um, so maternal health is something that's near and dear and important to me. And I'm really proud that um, my first bill that I introduced was on this issue. Um, in DC, we have the highest maternal mortality rate um, in the country, one that's um, you know above the national average and it's especially not great for black women. But when we think about the infrastructure that we have around healthcare in the city from postnatal to perinatal, it, it really is a struggle. Um, we don't have a hospital east of North Capitol Street in our city that has labor and delivery services. And, you know, for those of you who are listening who haven't been to D.C. before, North Capitol Street essentially runs down the center of the city, uh, down to the Capitol. Um, the folks who mainly live on the east side of that line are black and brown um, and some of the poorest wards of our city. And so the idea that you have to go west um which could be a long distance um or go into maryland if you're in labor just to give birth 
it is crazy to me, especially given the issues that we have and the challenges that we have on the maternal mortality side of things. Um, so my bill does three things. Um, one, it would establish a pilot to provide um, Medicaid reimbursement for individuals who wanna use doula services because we've seen from the research, especially for black and brown women by having an additional person in the room to advocate for you and, uh, and your healthcare, um, we have seen a decline in, in the, the um, fatalities and cases that have happened on that end. Um, the second is to do a feasibility study to open a birthing center east of the river. Um, so again, building up the healthcare infrastructure, but also acknowledging that a woman does not only have to give birth in a hospital. Um, and for many wealthy women, uh, they choose midwifery practices or birthing centers to provide, you know, they want more or less restricted care, if you will. Um, but those all have wait lists in DC and they're all in the wealthiest parts of the city. So what would it look like for the city to acknowledge that we want to increase equity of access um, and we'll build a center um, in you know, the part of town that needs it the most. And then finally, um, it would provide um, transportation reimbursement services so that women can get to their doctor's appointments especially during a pandemic, right? Where yeah. um, public transportation is not really clicking on all cylinders in terms mm. of being very reliable. Um, but also if you have to take two buses and a train to get to your doctor's appointment, you may skip it that day yeah. because you just don't have it in you. Uh, but if we can uh, partner up with rideshare services or those kinds of things so that you can get you know, the care that you need and you're not skipping appointments, I think that is a, a valuable a use of the resources and investments. So I'm really excited about that legislation. I'm excited about the work that the mayor has been doing around maternal health. And, and my hope is, is that we can put a dent in this problem, working with providers and community organizations to, to really give some excellent care to women across the city. I'm actually glad you really brought that up about midwives and doulas, because I know, I mean, most none of my friends are mothers yet, but we always kind of talk about, and I think that it's been, I don't want to say a trend, but like, I see more and more younger people are looking into getting midwives versus going to hospitals and stuff. So the fact that you bring up that that's normally in well-to-do neighborhoods and not easily accessible is actually, I didn't even know that. I thought that that was just a thing everyone might have access to, but that is a great point that you point pointed out because many of our listeners, I feel like if they're young like us probably wouldn't have known that because I know that that's never come up in conversation with my friends that I might live in an area where the midwife location is an hour away or, you know, and just in a completely out of the way community. So I'm glad you. Yeah. Me. I mean, it's, it's that, but also like for your listeners, you know, doula services are not covered by insurance. Yeah. So that's something yeah. that you're completely <laughs> yeah. paying out of yeah. pocket yeah. in addition to everything yeah. else that you're also going to be paying for. Um, and so, you know, how can we improve um, access? I think is, is key. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, continuing on kind of the health aspect of this, you recently tweeted about receiving uh, your first COVID shot last week. Um, many people, uh, you know, who are Black and Latino across the country, but especially in the district, uh, have expressed some hesitancy towards taking the vaccine. Um, why did you decide to take the vaccine? And can you just tell our listeners just kind of what the process is? I mean, I think all of us, you know, Mackenzie, Henry, and myself are all young. So we're probably, we're not 1A or 1B, we're probably, you know, Z20. But, you know, for kind of 
just take us into what the process was and you know why you chose to get uh, the vaccine. Yeah, um, so um, we essentially got an email, we uh, council members got an email um, that the mayor had determined as part of the continuity of government plan um, that council members should get vaccinated um, now. So in that particular tier group. Oh, go ahead, Henry. But So they forced you to do it. <laughs> no, it was not forced. <laughs> Basically, what they said was that you are eligible now. If you want to do it, here's the process of what to do, et cetera. Um, I just made that joke because I'm the only one on the podcast that's like, uh. You're, no! okay. you're also educating him. Yeah, you're, you're <laughs> yes, me right now. Let me, let me. Okay, so, you know, not, not all the council members got it, um, but we had about a 24 hour turnaround. So to do this very quickly, and again, you know, we're kind of operating in a virtual posture. So a lot of this conversations is happening over text message. Um, and at least for me personally, it was kind of a surprise. I honestly thought I had more time to, that I, like, you know, like you said, I would be lower in the, mm-hmm. in the numbers because, you know, healthy in the thirties, et cetera. Um, and I'm not going to lie to you or your listeners. Last year, uh, during the vaccine development process, when they were doing Operation Warp Speed, I was incredibly skeptical because mm-hmm. warp speed and something that is supposed to be safe and effective, those two just do not seem yeah. to go together in terms of language. But also I felt like the former president um, you know, he was politically desperate and that he might do anything and everything possible to see his way, you know, to reelection. Right. Um, and so I was like, okay, we're going to treat this like an Apple product. <laughs> you don't normally get the first generation, right? You let it come out, you see what happens, you, you wait, wait for wait. them to, you wait for them <laughs> to do the update that inevitably comes and then you go and get your product. Right. Um, but I honestly had to start to educate myself about this. So I started to do research about the technology that was used in the vaccine development. It had been you know, in development and in process for about two decades. Um, even though it was a more expedited process, they still went through the phase trials um, and you know, external peer reviews where folks were saying it's safe, it's effective. Um, Yes, there are a couple of side effects in terms of sore arms and those kinds of things. But when you look at what could happen to you if you get COVID, yeah. um, the risk, you know, it the risk of getting COVID certainly outweighs whatever the, the minor side effects that you might have um, from the vaccine. Um, and then also seeing like, you know, Dr. Kamizia Corbett, who is one of the black scientists who is at the center of the Moderna vaccine, yeah. seeing her talk about it. Um, listening to friends and families of, of mine in the medical field um, who were basically talking about like the safety, the efficacy, um, but also the need for us to like, to get out of this, to get out of this, people need to get vaccinated. And, um, you know, I decided to do it, but also to, I wouldn't, con- I don't call my, I don't, it's weird to say, I don't consider myself to be an influencer, but I feel like as an elected official, I have a responsibility, especially since in a city like ours, where we have had um, disproportionate number of folks in communities of color get COVID, and then also a disproportionate number of um, black and brown residents who have died as a result <clears throat> of this virus, um, that we need to stand up as an example. And I felt like by getting the vaccine, I can talk to some of my constituents and neighbors who are hesitant about my firsthand experience. 
because I think to do it in the other reverse to say, oh no, it's fine, it's safe. And they're like, but you haven't gotten right. it, how do you know? Yeah. Right, you know how our grandmas yeah. and aunties and folks can be. Um, yeah. And you know, just being able to open up that dialogue from our firsthand experience of, of, of getting the vaccine. Process-wise, you know, they're very organized. <laughs> um, once you get, you know, they, they uh, do a temperature check when you get there. Um, you get in line, you have to fill out your CDC card, they check you in. Um, the shot parse process is probably the quickest piece of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you sit and you're, you have to wait for 15 minutes before they let you leave and then you're done. Yeah. They give you an appointment for your next shot, which I have coming up in the next couple of weeks. But yeah. you know, Henry, if you want to talk more offline or if you, I can connect you with some doctors who could break it down. I understand, but here's the thing. I understand the skepticism and I feel like, uh, especially for black folks, like it's warranted, right? Mm -hmm. There has been decades and decades of mistreatment in the medical community as it comes, as it pertains to black, black and brown bodies. So I get it. And I'm not going to shame anyone for feeling that way, but I do feel like it is also our job to provide you with the most information possible. So you can make an informed decision for yourself in terms of how you want to proceed. And what I think is probably going to happen is that as more people see folks getting vaccinated, by the time it comes time, and once we hit tier two, et cetera, where you know a larger swath of the population will have access to the vaccine, I think more people will be clamoring for it um, at that point. And then kind of a follow-up on that, um, I know you're the legislative branch of you know the city operations, but how how you know can you and your office you know take steps to make sure that the vaccine is distributed equitably. I mean, I know that's like the big thing is that, you know, there was issues with testing and they were saying, oh, well, you know, it's harder to get testing sites here. And, you know, I'm assuming that that has to be the same with the vaccine where there probably are not as many, you know, testing sites east of the river or, you know, in certain parts of, you know, Ward 5 and 7 and 8, certainly. So how can kind of you and the council take steps to make sure that, you know, the mayor and, you know, the CDC is, not just giving it to, you know, everybody who is, you know, west of North Capitol and in, you know, Upper Palisades in that, in that aspect. Because we do, and up to your point, we do need it the most. Yeah, I mean, so I feel like actually, um, I'm gonna say this now at this point, we have handled some of the equity issues that we had because at the beginning it was a hot mess and it was very rough. And I'll be honest with you, there was some tension I feel like between council members and the executive as we were pushing mm. on, just wanting the numbers by wards of how many people were able to get appointments, especially when we opened it up to 65 plus. Um, And what happened after that first week, (laughs) when they saw that essentially the vast majority of appointments were claimed by residents in wards two, three, and Mm -hmm. six, versus um, at the time in that first week, I feel like it was like less than 50 appointments had been claimed by residents in Ward 8 at that point, right? Where we had seen. um, And so the city made an adjustment. We started to do priorities in terms of how um, we provide access to the website. But the question around equity is something that we continue to push on every single week. Um, You know, one of the things that we've been talking about is like, okay, yes, we we have vaccination sites inside grocery stores, et cetera. Can we move vaccination sites into more places where older black folks might feel more comfortable? And this week was the first week that we did a vaccination clinic in a church. Oh, wow. um, 
and were able to vaccinate about 200 residents who hadn't actually been able to get access through the regular process. Um, but engaging faith leaders in this conversation, I think is helpful. <clears throat> and the one thing that I have definitely been pushing on is like, let's do proactive outreach. If you are gonna set up a vaccination site at a DCHA or at a senior home, mm -hmm. y'all need to go door to door before that actually happens to answer people's questions. Don't just point me to an online FAQ because I feel like people have legitimate questions. How is this gonna interact with the medications that I already have, right? Um, can I, is, do I have restrictions on what I can eat after I do this? Um, all of these different pieces and questions and we just need to make ourselves more available and be more proactive in terms of answering those as opposed to saying, oh, well, you know, we opened up you know, X number of sites in these areas and they just chose not to get vaccinated. So it's not our problem. Mm -mm. As the government, it is always our problem. It, it is our responsibility to educate and inform and provide enough information for people, again, to make an informed decision. I appreciate you simply because last, the, at least the last two episodes, we one of us has posed a question to some degree of, who is in the government holding these people accountable? Who is like actually going, you know? So I, it was I, always you, Henry. <laughs> it was you. <laughs> it was me. I'm talking about, uh, I don't know who it was. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, Henry, to your point, like, okay, so last night we had a hearing and um, I'm not gonna lie, this school leader kind of read us and it stuck with me so much that I sent him a message right after, but he said, he was talking to the council members and he said, you don't allow mediocrity with us. He was talking about with school leaders. Y'all come hard for us. He's a charter leader. So he was like, he was feeling some kind of way. Anyway, he was like, but he basically was like, but why do you tolerate mediocrity in your own agencies? Because we can only do so much, but y'all are okay with it taking five years to change one form. Y'all are okay with all of these. And I just felt like, he's right. <laughs> um, and I think it, it pushes, it, it, it has pushed me for, for certain to continue to think about that. Like there are areas of our lives where we don't tolerate mediocrity. And yet when it comes to government services, critical government services, we are okay with someone saying it's going to take 180 days to put a stop sign out or that I can't answer that question until, you know, X, Y, or Z. I don't, I don't know. So I feel you, Henry. <laughs> I, I need to meet that uh, charter teacher because we might be friends. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> we definitely appreciate you. And this is going to be like one of the last questions. Uh, we I know we kind of jumped around. We wanted to get the whole scope of Councilwoman Henderson, right? Um, but you recently introduced uh, the Fair Wage uh, Amendment Act that would prohibit employers from asking about, you know, past wages. Um, how would this protect people of color and then black women um, from like wage discrimination? Yeah, well, I mean, the whole thing is around sort of the wage discrimination question and you guys, you know, recent college graduates who've been out on the job scene. Um, I think for me, it's important that your a past situation where you might have been lowballed or not paid your worth isn't tied to you for the rest of your life. Um, Can I, I jump through that, the computer and give you a hug? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm, yeah, I'm saying I felt, this. I felt that in my spirit. <laughs> right? Because I feel like, um, 
you know, as someone who worked on Capitol Hill for a long time, where <clears throat> I know that staffers of color are not paid their worth. And that's why staffers of color don't end up staying on Capitol Hill is because um, K Street and other op opportunities come along and say, we'll pay you. And we, you know, we had the conversation earlier about student loans and those kinds of things. But if a, an employer is then just going to pay you on your payment history when you are already lowballed, this is where it starts to, to become a problem very early on. And so I think, um, you know, by saying to employers, pay me what you think I'm worth, not based on what you think I should earn because of my past experience or my past earnings, I think is an incredibly important point. And so uh, I'm excited to push that forward. That was a, a bill that was offered um, last council period by my predecessor. And I, I'm, I'm glad to carry the torch. Um, and we've got a number of my, of my fellow colleagues who are on it. So I'm hopeful that we can um, make progress on that this year. Awesome. Well, that is uh, it for us, Councilwoman Henderson. We not only thank you for coming on, you are our first elected official. And this was probably the best way to start that. Um, whoop, whoop. In general, how can our listeners and our viewers, how can they get in touch with you? Is there any you know, newsletters or social media handles that our listeners need to follow to stay up to date? Because I think, you know, I'll speak for myself and Henry McKenzie, we've probably learned more about the city in these past 40 minutes than we have through a lot of research ourselves. So, you know, how can we keep up with you and, you know, the amazing work that you're doing? Yeah, so um, I, I am pretty active on social. You can follow me on Twitter at C Henderson. I'm also on Instagram at Christina Henderson DC. Um, also on Facebook. Um, we have a new website that, ooh, now I look at my chief of staff. There's a new website that's supposed to be launching soon, um, you know, to get on that. But, you know, I'm trying to be accessible. I'm trying to change the way that we do government. Um, I, I do tweet back. I don't often catch your DMs um, in time. So, but if you're looking for a question, you can also find our contact information on the council website. Um, and we're here to help navigate the process as best as possible. Awesome. Well, Councilman Henderson, we thank you very, very much uh, for coming on. And that is going to be it for us. This was episode number 67 of the What's Really Going On podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WRGOPod. Be sure to subscribe on YouTube where you can watch all of our clips in full. You can also listen, subscribe, like, share, and comment on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Play. In addition, be sure to check out our website, which you can find on what's really going on pod.com.